Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. So, I remind you, you're listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read in Ayers LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. All right, so we got a couple of obituaries here. So this first one is from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, January 26, 2024. Michael B. Hirsch, August 27, 1938 to January 23, 2024. Author unknown. Mike Hirsch passed surrounded by his loving family. His wife of 63 years, Joan, son David, and daughter-in-law Claudia of Greenwich, Connecticut, son James, and daughter-in-law Pamela of Encino, and grandchildren Kate and Grant, Ashley and Melanie. He also leaves behind his sister, Corinne Corky London, preceded in death by his cherished parents, Charlotte and Henry, and brother Stephen. Graduated, graduated of Syracuse University, BBA 60, Mike was a third-generation metal door manufacturer. He purchased a fledgling Security Metal Products Corporation in 1981, and soon it became a leading supplier of hollow metal doors and frames. Notable projects included the Crypto Arena, the Pentagon, the new LAX International Terminal, and the Jin Mao Tower in Shanghai, one of the world's tallest buildings. After retiring as its chairman and CEO in 2010, he spent his days golfing and relaxing with friends and family. He was a member of both the Brentwood and Tamarisk Country Clubs. Mike was charming, entertaining, spirited, and forthright. As a dad, he successfully nurtured and mentored his sons and in his favorite role as Poppy to his grandkids, he was engaging and loving. Service will be held Sunday, January 28, 9 a.m. at Hillside Memorial Park in Culver City. Donations can be made to a charity of your choice in his name. That was Michael B. Hirsch, August 27, 1938 to January 23, 2024, author unknown, from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, January 26, 2024. Right, we have another one here from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times for Saturday, January 27, 2024. Arnold Daniel Goldstein, February 27, 1933 to January 23, 2024. Author unknown. In loving memory of Arnold Daniel Goldstein. Arnold Goldstein, an icon in the real estate industry, passed away on January 23, 2024, leaving behind a rich tapestry of achievements, cherished memories, and a profound impact on those who had the privilege of knowing him. Born on February 27, 1933 in Detroit, Michigan, the first of four children to Jack and Pearl Goldstein, Arnold's remarkable journey was defined by an unwavering commitment to excellence, a deep love for his family, and an entrepreneurial spirit that transformed Shorewood Realtors into a powerhouse brokerage. Arnold Goldstein, the visionary founder of Shorewood uh, Realtors, was more than a businessman. He was the heart and soul of a company that thrived under his leadership for nearly five decades. Founded in 1969, Shorewood Realtors became synonymous with integrity, professionalism, and unparalleled service, a testament to Arnold's relentless pursuit of excellence. Arnold's journey into real estate began after an initial career in fashion and sales. His innate ability to connect with people and his unwavering work ethic propelled him to remarkable success. In the 1960s, he achieved unprecedented sales numbers, including selling 60 homes in 1964 alone, 
a feat unmatched in the industry. Arnold led Shoreline Shorewood Realtors to unparalleled heights, reporting a staggering $2.25 billion in sales during a 12-month period between 2003 and 04, making it the largest independent brokerage in L.A. County, solidifying its position as a market leader and a symbol of excellence in the real estate community. Arnold's dedication to nurturing talent and fostering a culture of excellence ensured Shorewood's continued growth and success over the decades. His commitment to his employees went beyond his pro- beyond professional realms. He viewed them as family, cultivating an environment where camaraderie and love flourished. Beyond his professional achievements, Arnold had a passion for fashion, notorious for his decadent outfits. He started selling shoes at 14 years old, studied fashion design in college, worked with famed designer William Travilla, and opened a shoe, a shoe store alongside his son Mark in the early 90s on Melrose called Madison. He loved horses, breeding German Hanoverian performance horses at his Rancho Manana and Rancho Mirage. With his wife, Homira, their enthusiasm for fine dining and contemporary art took them to the best restaurants, wine tastings, and becoming founding members of the American Institute of Wine and Food and prolific art collectors. Arnold was a diehard fan of their son, Joshua, who never and never missed a single game of his. Arnold's impact extended far beyond the confines of his brokerage. He was a mentor, a friend, and a pillar of support for countless individuals who had the privilege of knowing him. His generosity, kindness, and unwavering dedication to serving others left an indelible mark on those who crossed his path. As we bid farewell to Arnold Goldstein, we celebrate a life well-lived, a life defined by a passion, perseverance, and steadfast dedication to his craft. His memory will forever remain in the hearts of those who had the honor of knowing him, and his legacy as a visionary leader and a beloved patriarch will continue to inspire us all. Arnold is survived by his wife, Homira, their son, Joshua, and their grandson, Silas, as well as his son, Mark, from his first marriage to his ex-wife, Irene, and his granddaughters, Jordan and Mia. He lost his daughter, Suzanne, at age 28. The memorial service will be held on Monday, January 29th at Hillside Memorial Park, 6001 West Sentinella Avenue, Los Angeles, 90045 at 2.30 p.m. That was Arnold Daniel Goldstein, February 27, 1933 to January 23, 2024, author unknown, from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, for Saturday, January 27, 2024. On to Israel stories, from the world section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, January 14, 2024, Netanyahu says World Court can't stop Israel's war, by Najib Jobain, David Rising, and Sami Magdi. Rafa Gaza Strip. Israel will, will pursue its war against Hamas militants until victory and will not be stopped by anyone, including the world court, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said in a defiant speech Saturday as the fighting in the Gaza Strip approached the 100-day mark. Netanyahu spoke after the International Court of Justice at The Hague held two days of hearings on South Africa's allegations that Israel is committing genocide against Palestinians, a charge Israel has rejected as libelous and hypocritical. South Africa asked the court to order Israel to halt its blistering air and ground offensive in an interim step. No one will stop us, not the Hague, not the axis of evil, and not anyone else, 
Netanyahu said in televised remarks Saturday evening, referring to Iran and its allied militias. The case before the World Court is expected to go on for years, but a ruling on interim steps could come within weeks. Court rulings are binding but difficult to enforce. Netanyahu made clear that Israel would ignore orders to halt fighting, potentially deepening its isolation. Israel has been under growing international pressure to end the war, which has killed more than 23,000 Palestinians in Gaza and led to widespread suffering in the besieged enclave, but has so far been shielded by U.S. diplomatic and military support. Israel says that ending the war would mean victory for Hamas, the Islamic militant group that has ruled Gaza since 2007 and is bent on Israel's destruction. On Friday afternoon, Germany said it wants to intervene in the proceedings on Israel's behalf, saying there was no basis whatsoever for an accusation of genocide against Israel. Hamas terrorists brutally attacked, tortured, killed, and kidnapped innocent people in Israel, German government spokesman Stefan Hebstreit said in a statement. Since then, Israel has been defending itself against the inhumane attack by Hamas. Concerns of a wider conflagration have been palpable since the start of the war, triggered by the deadly October 7 attack on southern Israel by Hamas and other Gaza militants, in which they killed at least 1,200 people, mostly civilians, and kidnapped about 240 others. As the death toll mounts in Gaza, new fronts have emerged with Iran-backed groups, Houthi rebels in Yemen, Hezbollah in Lebanon, and Iran-backed militias in Iraq and Syria, carrying out a range of attacks. From the start, the U.S. increased its military presence in the region to deter an escalation. Following a healthy campaign of drone missile attacks on commercial ships in the Red Sea, the U.S. and Britain launched multiple airstrikes against the rebels Friday, and the U.S. hit another site Saturday. In Gaza, where Hamas has put up resistance to Israel's air and ground campaign, the war continued unabated. The Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry said Saturday that 135 Palestinians were killed in the last 24 hours, bringing the overall toll of the war to 23,843. The count does not differentiate between combatants and civilians. The ministry has said about two-thirds of the dead are women and children. The ministry said the total number of war wounded has surpassed 60,000. After an Israeli airstrike before dawn Saturday, Video provided by Gaza's Civil Defense Department showed rescue workers searching through the twisted rubble of a building in Gaza by flashlight. Videos showed them carrying a young girl wrapped in blankets with injuries to her face and at least two other children who appeared dead. A boy covered in dust winced as he was loaded into an ambulance. The attack on the home in the Daraj neighborhood killed at least 20 people, according to Civil Defense spokesperson Mahmoud Bazal. Another strike late Friday near the southern city of Rafah on the Egyptian border killed at least 13 people, including two children. The bodies of those killed primarily from a displaced family from central Gaza were taken to the city's Abu Yosef Najjar Hospital, where they were seen by an Associated Press reporter. Israel has argued that Hamas is responsible for the high civilian casualties, saying its fighters make use of civilian buildings and launch attacks from densely populated urban areas. The Israeli military released a video Saturday that it said showed the destruction of two ready-to-use rocket-launching compounds in Muharraqwa in central Gaza. A large grove of palm trees and some homes are seen in the frame. In the video, 
a rocket is being thrown into the air by the blast. The military said there had been dozens of uh, launches ready to be used. Netanyahu and his army chief, Herzl Halevi, said they have no immediate plans to allow the returns of displaced Palestinians to northern Gaza, the initial focus of Israel's offensive. Fighting in the northern half has been scaled back, while forces now focusing on the southern city of Khan Yunus, though com- combat continues in parts of the north. Netanyahu said the issue has been raised by U.S. Secretary of State Antony J. Blinken during his visit last week. The Israeli leader said he told Blinken that we will not return residents to their homes when there is fighting. At the same time, Netanyahu said Israel would eventually need to close what he said were breaches along Gaza's border with Egypt. Over the years of an Israeli-Egyptian blockade, smuggling tunnels under the Egypt-Gaza border had constituted a major supply line for Gaza. However, the border area, particularly the city of Rafah in southern Gaza, is packed with hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who had fled northern Gaza, and the presence would complicate any plans to widen Israel's ground offensive. We will not end the war until we close this breach, Netanyahu said Saturday, adding that the government has not yet decided how to do that. With the war in Gaza entering its 100th day on Sunday, the World Health Organization has said only 15 of the territory's 36 hospitals are still partially functional, according to OCHA, the United Nations Humanitarian Affairs Agency. The main hospital in central Gaza, Al-Aqiza Martyrs Hospital in the city of Deir al-Bala, went dark Friday morning after running out of fuel. Staff were able to keep ventilators and incubators operating with solar-charged batteries during the day and received a small emergency shipment of fuel from another hospital late Friday. Fuel was expected to run out again Saturday unless the WHO was able to deliver a promised shipment, hospital officials said. Aid deliveries were being disrupted by a renewed drop in telecommunications connectivity in much of Gaza, which began late Friday. Since the start of Israel's ground operation in October, late October, 187 Israeli soldiers have been killed and 1,099 others injured in Gaza, according to the military. More than 85% of Gaza's population of 2.3 million has been displaced as a result of Israel's air and ground offensive and vast swaths of the territory have been leveled. Amid already severe shortages of food, clean water, and fuel in Gaza, OCHA said in its daily report that Israel's severe constraints on humanitarian missions and outright denials had increased since the start of the year. The agency said only 21% of planned deliveries of food, medicine, water, and other supplies have been successfully reaching northern Gaza. American and other international efforts pushing Israel to do more to alleviate the suffering of Palestinian civilians have met with little success. At the same time, Shifa Hospital in Gaza City, the territory's main hospital that had been shut down since November, had begun partially functioning again, the WHO said Friday. Director General Tedros Ghebreyesus said his organization has delivered 2,460 gallons of fuel to Shifa, allowing a 60-person medical team to begin treating more than 1,000 patients. That was Netanyahu says World Court Can't Stop Israel's War by Najib Jobain, David Rising, and Sami Magdi from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, January 14, 2024.
Jobain Rising and Magdi write for the Associated Press. All right, continuing from the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, January 19, 2024, Netanyahu rejects post-war prospect of a Palestinian state. Israeli leader stance underscores deep split with the U.S. He vows to pursue a decisive victory over Hamas by, jo by Jose Federman, Najib Jobin, and Jack Jeffrey. Jerusalem. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Thursday that he has told the United States he opposes the establishment of a Palestinian state as part of any post-war scenario, underscoring the deep divisions between the close allies three months into Israel's assault on Gaza. The U.S. has called on Israel to scale back the, uh, of the offensive that aims to eliminate Gaza's Hamas rulers, and uh, American officials have said the establishment of a Palestinian state should be part of the day after. But in a nationally broadcast news conference, Netanyahu vowed to press ahead with the offensive until Israel realizes a decisive victory over Hamas. He also rejected the idea of Palestinian statehood. statehood. He said he has relayed his positions to the Americans. In any future arrangement, Israel needs security control over all territory west of the Jordan, Netanyahu said. This collides with the idea of sovereignty. What can you do? The prime minister needs to be capable of saying no to our friends, he added. More than 100 days after, a, after Hamas triggered the war with its October 7 cross-border attack, Israel continues to wage one of the deadliest and most destructive military campaigns in recent history, with the goal of dismantling a militant group that has ruled the Gaza Strip since 2007 and rescuing scores of captives. The war has stoked tensions across the region, threatening to ignite other conflicts. An Israeli airstrike on a home killed 16 people, half of them children, in the southern Gaza town of Rafah, medics said early Thursday. The Israeli military continued to strike targets in the areas of the besieged territory where it had told Palestinian civilians to seek refuge. Meanwhile, there was no word on whether medicines that entered the territory Wednesday as part of a deal brokered by France and Qatar had been distributed to dozens of hostages held by Hamas who suffer from chronic illnesses. More than 24,000 Palestinians have been killed. About 85% of the narrow coastal territory's 2.3 million people have fled their homes, and the United Nations says a quarter of the population is starving. Hundreds of thousands of needed Israeli evacuation orders are packed into southern Gaza, where shelters run by the UN are overflowing and massive tent camps have gone up. But Israel has continued to strike what it says are military targets on, in all of Gaza, often killing women and children. Dr. Talat Barham at Rafa's Najir Hospital confirmed the death toll from the new strike in the town uh, and said dozens more were wounded. Associated Press video from the hospital showed relatives weeping over the bodies of loved ones. They were suffering from hunger, they were dying from hunger, and now they have also been hit, said Mahmoud Qasim, a relative of some of those who were killed. Internet and cell phone services in Gaza have been down for five days, the longest of several outages during the war, according to Internet Access Advocacy Group Netblocks. The outages complicate rescue efforts and make it difficult to obtain information about the latest strikes and casualties. The war has rippled across the Middle East, with Iran-backed groups attacking U.S. and Israeli targets. 
low-intensity fighting between Israel and Hezbollah militants in Lebanon threatened threats to erupt into an all-out war, and Houthi rebels in Yemen continue to target international shipping despite U.S.-led airstrikes. The Israeli military said it fired an interceptor at a suspicious aerial target, probably a drone or missile, approaching over the Red Sea on Thursday, triggering air raid sirens in the southern Israeli coastal city of Eilat. The Houthis have launched drones and missiles uh, toward Israel that have mostly fallen short or been intercepted and shot down. Iran has launched a series of missile attacks targeting what it describes as an Israeli spy base in Iraq and military bases in Syria, as well as in Pakistan, where, which carries out reprisal strikes against what it described as militant hideouts in Iran early Thursday. It was unclear whether the strikes in Syria and Pakistan were related to the Gaza war, but they, show, but they showcased Iran's ability to carry out long-range missile attacks at a time of heightened tensions with Israel and the U.S., which has provided crucial support for the Gaza offensive and carried out its own strikes against Iran-allied groups in Syria and Iraq. Israel has vowed to dismantle Hamas to ensure that it can never repeat an attack like that on October 7, when militants burst through Israel's border defenses and stormed through several communities, killing at least 1,200 people, mostly civilians, and taking around 250 hostages. Israel has also vowed to rescue all the hostages remaining in captivity after more than 100, mostly women and children, were freed during a November ceasefire in exchange for the release of scores of Palestinians imprisoned by Israel. Family members and supporters were marking the first birthday of Kifar Bibas, the youngest Israeli hostage, in a somber ceremony Thursday in Tel Aviv. The red-haired infant and his four-year-old brother Ariel were captured along with their mother Shiri and their father Yarden. All four remain in captivity. The agreement to ship in medicines was the first to be brokered between the uh, warring sides since November. Hamas said that for every box of medicine bound for the hostages, 1,000 would be sent for Palestinian civilians in addition to food and humanitarian aid. Qatar confirmed late Wednesday that the medicine had entered Gaza, but it was unclear yet whether it has been distributed to the hostages who are being held in secret locations, including underground bunkers. Both France and Hamas have said uh, that the International Committee of the Red Cross, which helped facilitate the hostage releases, would have a role in distribu distributing the med medications. But on Thursday, the Red Cross said that the mechanism that was agreed to, do, to, to, agree to does not involve the ICRC playing any part in its implementation, including the delivery of medication. Hamas has continued to fight back across Gaza, even in the most devastated areas, and launch rockets into Israel. It says it will not release any more hostages until there is a permanent ceasefire, something Israel and top ally US, uh, top ally US have ruled out. The Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza says at least 24,448 Palestinians have been killed, with more than 60,000 wounded. It says many other dead and wounded are trapped under rubble or unreachable because of the fighting. The ministry does not differentiate between civilian combatant deaths, but says about two-thirds of those killed were women and children. That was Netanyahu Rejects Post-War Prospect of Palestinian State by Jose Fetterman, Najib Jobain, and Jack Jeffrey. 
from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, January 19, 2024. Fetterman, Joe Bain, and Jeffrey read for the Associated Press and reported from Jerusalem, Rafa, and London, respectively. All right, continuing from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, January 20, 2024. Rifts emerge among Israeli officials over war. Wartime cabinet members expresses doubts over rescuing hostages from Gaza as death toll mounts by Julia Frankel, Najib Jobain, and Basim Moreau. Jerusalem. Rifts are emerging among top Israeli officials over the handling of the war in Gaza with a cabin of the member of the wartime cabinet casting doubt on the strategy for rescuing hostages and the prime minister rejecting Washington's calls to scale back the offensive. Only a ceasefire deal can win the release of dozens of hostages held by Hamas militants in Gaza and claims that they could be freed by other means only spread illusions, said former Army Chief Gadi Eisenkot, one of five members of the wartime cabinet, in his first public statements on, on the course of the war. Eisenkot's comments late Thursday were the latest sign of disagreement among political and military leaders over the direction of a war that is in its fourth month. Sparked by the Hamas October 7 attack on Israel, that killed about 1,200 people, mostly civilians, and saw about 250 taken hostage, the Israeli assault has pulverized much of the Gaza Strip, home to some 2.3 million people. Israel has said more than 130 hostages remain in Gaza, but not all are believed to be alive. Israel's offensive, one of the deadliest and most destructive military campaigns in recent history, has killed nearly 25,000 Palestinians, according to Gaza Health Authorities, and uprooted more than 80% of the territory's population. The Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza said Friday that 142 people were killed and 278 wounded the previous day, raising the death toll since October 7 to 24,762 and the number of wounded to 62,108. Israel has cut off all, uh, all but a trickle of supplies, including food, water, and fuel, into the Gaza Strip. Several dozen trucks with critical supplies enter the territory each day, just a fraction of the pre-war volume of about 500 trucks. Both the United Nations and United States and United Nations have said more aid needs to be delivered. A communications blackout in Gaza was in its seventh day Friday, the longest such blackout since the war began. The lack of communication communications hampers the coordination of aid delivering, deliveries and rescue efforts. The U.S., Israel's closest ally, has provided military and political support for the campaign, but has been increasingly calling on Jerusalem to scale back the assault and take steps toward establishing a Palestinian state after the war, a suggestion of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has soundly rejected. Speaking during a nationally televised news conference Thursday, Netanyahu reiterated his opposition to a two-state solution, arguing that a Palestinian state would it become a launchpad for attacks on Israel? Israel must have security control over the entire territory west of the Jordan River, Netanyahu said. That collides with the idea of sovereignty. What can we do? The United the U.S. has said in has said the internationally recognized Palestinian Authority, which governs semi-autonomous zones in the Israeli-occupied West Bank, should be revitalized and returned to Gaza. Hamas ousted the authority from Gaza in 2007. Washington has also called for steps toward the establishment of a Palestinian state. 
The Palestinians see Gaza, the West Bank, and East Jerusalem for their state. Those areas were captured by Israel in 1967. Speaking Wednesday at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, U.S. Secretary of State Antony J. Blinken said the two-state solution was the best way to protect Israel, unify moderate Arab countries, and isolate Israel's archenemy, Iran. He said that without a pathway to a Palestinian state, Israel would not get genuine security. At the same conference, Saudi Arabia's foreign minister said the kingdom was ready to establish full relations with Israel as part of a larger political agreement. But that can only happen through peace for the Palestinians uh, through a Palestinian state, he said. A spokesperson for Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas said late Thursday that there can be no security and stability in the region without a Palestinian state. Netanyahu and Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant have said the fighting will continue until Hamas is crushed and argue that only military action can win the hostages' release. Hamas seeks an end to the war before discussing hostage releases and has demanded the release of thousands of Palestinians in, 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 imprisoned by Israel in exchange for those held captive in Gaza. Commentators have begun to question whether Netanyahu's objectives are realistic given the slow pace of the offensive and growing international criticism, including accusations at the UN's High Court of Genocide, which Israel vehemently denies. Netanyahu's opponents accuse him of delaying any discussion of post-war scenarios in order to avoid investigations of government failures, keep his coalition intact, and pull off elections. Polls show that the popularity of Netanyahu, who was on trial for corruption charges, has plummeted during the war. Former Army Chief Eisenkot, whose son was killed in Gaza last month, told the TV program Uvda, U-V-D-A, late Thursday, that the hostages would return alive only if there was a deal linked to a significant pause in fighting. He said rescue operations were unlikely because the hostages are apparently spread out, many of them in underground tunnels. Claiming that hostages can be freed by means other than a deal is to spread illusions, he said. In a thinly veiled criticism of Netanyahu, Eisenkot said, that strategic decisions about the war's direction must be made urgently and that a discussion about an endgame should, should have begun immediately after the war started. He also dismissed suggestions that the military had delivered a decisive blow against Hamas. Galan has said that troops disabled the Hamas command structure in northern Gaza from which significant numbers of troops were withdrawn earlier in the week and that the focus is now on the southern half of the territory. We haven't yet reached a strategic achievement, or rather only partially, Eisenkot said. We did not bring down Hamas. The militant group has continued to fight back across Gaza, even in the most devastated areas, and launched rockets into Israel. In his interview, Eisenkot confirmed that a preemptive strike against Lebanon's Hezbollah militia was called off at the last minute, during the early days of the war. He said he was among those arguing against such a strike during an October 11 cabinet meeting that left him hoarse from shouting. Such an attack would have been a strategic mistake and would likely have triggered a regional war, Eisenkot said. The former, the former army chief said he is examining whether he should remain in the wartime cabinet, which includes Netanyahu, Gallant, 
former Defense Minister Benny Gantz and Ron Dermer, Strategic Affairs Minister in Netanyahu's administration. Eisenkot is a member of parliament in the opposition National Unity Alliance, headed by Gantz. Both joined Netanyahu to help lead the war. I know what my red line is, Eisenkot said when asked at what point he would quit. It's connected to the hostages. That is one of the objectives, but it's also connected to the way in which we need to run this war. The war has rippled across the Middle East, with Iranian-backed groups attacking U.S. and Israeli targets. Fighting between Israel and Hezbollah militants in Lebanon threatens to erupt into another all-out war, and Iran-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen continue to target international shipping despite U.S.-led airstrikes. The U.S. on Friday conducted a sixth strike against Houthi rebels in Yemen, even as President Biden acknowledged that bombing the militants has yet to stop their attacks on ships in the crucial Red Sea Corridor. There was rifts emerge among Israeli officials over war by Julia Frankel, Najib Jobain, and Bassem Moreau from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, January 20, 2024. All right, let's turn to some opinion articles here. Uh, this first one is from the Opinion section of the Los Angeles Times for Saturday, January 20th, 2024. Netanyahu wages an endless war. Will Biden say enough? The Prime Minister opposes a Palestinian state, the only path to peace, by Josh Paul. A week before I resigned from the State Department last October, I reminded my colleagues that it had been clear for decades that the only route to the just and lasting peace of all civilians in Israel and Palestine deserves is not through military victory, but through diplomatic compromise. It's not through creating fear, but through building trust. Not through killing enemies, but through making friends. Not through imposing suffering, but through inspiring hope. Unfortunately, more than three months later, the United States and its, uh, it, and its Israeli partner <clears throat> continue to pursue the first option in each of those choices. Palestinian officials say Gaza's death toll is now more than 24,000 people, though U.S. officials concede it is likely higher. For those looking for an end to the conflict in Gaza and a just and lasting resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian peace process, the future looks bleak. The status quo we have found ourselves in is characterized by unresolvable contradictions between the equities of the various stakeholders involved and, the, and even their own policy priorities. The result? A labyrinth where every turn leads to a dead end. Take Israel's explicit objectives in its operations in Gaza, to free the hostages and to destroy Hamas. As has become increasingly clear, even to the Israeli public, the country can pick one or the other, but it's unlikely to achieve both. Or take the future rule of Gaza. This week, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu made it clear that he has no interest in a Palestinian state emerging from the current conflict. To those who have followed his statements for some time, this was not news. Netanyahu has repeatedly celebrated his success in stymieing the creation of the state promised by the Oslo Accords process. At the same time, he has also pledged to his followers that there will be no unified rule by the Palestinian Authority of Gaza and the West Bank. Meanwhile, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken has been flying around the Middle East and Europe pledging American support for a path to Palestinian statehood. But let's assume some sort of identifiable Palestinian entity did emerge to run both the West Bank and Gaza. 
for Israel and the U.S., our role for Hamas and that entity is unacceptable. So the options being put forward by the U.S. and Israel appear to run from you can't have self-governance, let alone a state, to you might have a state eventually, but we'll tell you when, uh, when you can elect. We'll tell you who you can elect. What about the restructuring of Gaza, where three-quarters of the housing stock has been damaged or destroyed? Not to mention the devastation of infrastructures such as water, electricity, hospitals, and even schools and universities. Rebuilding would cost tens of billions of dollars and take a decade under the best of circumstances. But Israel is likely to remain opposed to the importation of many construction materials that it considers dual use, meaning bad actors could exploit the goods for other purposes. Meanwhile, Arab countries have told the U.S., they will not invest in the construction of facilities that will just be leveled again in five years. Yet who can imagine Israel promising it won't take such action? And what of the Palestinians who survived the current bombardment? There is insufficient infrastructure to feed, clothe, and employ them in Gaza, but the idea of a resettlement of hundreds of thousands of desperate civilians out of Gaza, even a temporary one, smacks of a second Nakba, where Palestinians were displaced from their homeless in their homes in 1948 and comes with no guarantees Israel will let them re-enter the Strip. Everywhere one looks, there are only dead ends. On the current path, the most likely future is one without a Palestinian state, but also without a clear alternative. One without a ceasefire, which Israel regularly strikes at those it assesses to be a threat, both in Gaza and the West Bank one in which Palestinian citizens of Israel and residents of East Jerusalem face increased repression in a more polarized society, one in which there is a permanent humanitarian crisis in Gaza and an emerging refugee crisis in Sinai. In the Sinai. This is the most likely of the futures. Everyone loses. The Palestinians continue to suffer in increasingly grotesque conditions. Israel loses the chance at a lasting peace becomes increasingly isolated from the world community and never gains the real security its citizens deserve. The Middle East raises another generation prone to radicalization, and the United States loses any remaining threat of threat of moral credibility and finds itself tied into another disaster in the region at a time when it is so urgently needed so urgently seeking to shift its focus farther east. It does not have to be this way. It has not had to be this way for months. The United States and its allies and partners have the leverage to force the parties to uh, the conflict to make the necessary concessions, starting with the ceasefire, recognition of Palestinian statehood, and support for all the diplomatic, economic, and security steps that will be needed to set off on the right course. Instead, President Biden remains stuck in his embrace of Netanyahu, continuing to provide, without condition, the arms being used to de devastate Gaza, the diplomatic cover being used to prevent real political solutions or any accountability under international law, and as committed as ever to whatever course Israel sets, however contradictory or harmful to both Israeli and American interests. The current path leads nowhere. It is time for America to change direction. That was Netanyahu wages an endless war. Will Biden say enough? By Josh Paul from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, January 20, 2024. Josh Paul was, until recently, a director of the State Department's Bureau of Political Military Affairs.
Here's one more. From the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, January 22nd, 2024, Netanyahu is far from alone in his hostility to two states by Raphael S. Cohen. One can understand why President Biden, after sticking his political neck out for Israel for months, is reportedly frustrated with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Rockets were still falling on Tel Aviv when Biden visited Israel to show support. He sent U.S. armed forces to the region to, Hez uh, to deter Hezbollah and, more recently, beat back healthy piracy. He pushed for billions of dollars in additional military aid and backed Israel's war in Gaza even as it became increasingly unpopular. In exchange, Biden has asked Netanyahu to commit to a Palestinian state once the Israeli-Hamas war ends, and Netanyahu just publicly said no. The United States is now reported to be actively engaging with other leaders and parties in Israel about the future of Gaza and the Palestinians at large. The problem is that opposition to a Palestinian state stretches well beyond the prime minister's office. Netanyahu undeniably has his own reasons for rejecting Palestinian statehood. His government relies on the support of ultra-right-wing parties that advocate the expulsion of Gazans from the Strip en masse. If he backed Palestinian statehood, the coalition would shatter his government, it would shatter and his government would collapse. And polls suggest that if new elections are held, Netanyahu will be out of a job and facing legal woes. Then there are the border practicalities of implementing a two-state solution, demarcating everything from water rights to airspace, and carving out the geography from the river to the sea without bisecting Israel in the process. The most daunting political problems would be relocating the 700,000 Israeli settlers in the West Bank and the eternal challenge of dealing with Jerusalem. But there is also something deeper behind Netanyahu's opposition, a fundamentally different conception of the root cause of the October 7 massacre and the current war. In the American narrative, the context of October 7 is the failure of the 1990s era Israeli-Palestinian peace process. In this telling, Israel's mowing the grass approach, killing militants without simultaneously providing Palestinians with real political or economic opportunities, was bound to fail. Peace, therefore, begins with providing those opportunities, and a path to a two-state solution. In Israel's version of events, the error was Israel's 2005 withdrawal from Gaza, which gave Hamas a sanctuary to plan, train for, and ultimately launch a relatively unimpended attack on Israel. Israel notes that it, is, that it not only allowed, but encouraged Qatar to funnel money to Gaza to improve living conditions, some of which was probably spent on weapons. Israel also contends that work permits allowing thousands of Gazans to earn higher wages in Israel became a means for Hamas to gather intelligence. In Israel's view, a two-state solution would only compound this problem. The Palestinian Authority is widely viewed as weak and corrupt. Nearly 9 in 10 Palestinians want its president Mahmoud Abbas to resign. Meanwhile, 57% of Gazans and 82% of West Bank Palestinians approve of Hamas's October attack, and overall support for the group has increased in both regions. So, Israel asks, what would prevent Hamas or a similar group from usurping control of a Palestinian state much as they did in Gaza? This is not just Netanyahu's view, but Israeli's view. 
Support for a two-state solution among Israelis has been declining for a decade, according to the Pew Research Center. In a survey conducted several months before the Hamas attack, a mere 35% of Israelis thought two states could coexist peacefully. As Israeli President Isaac Herzog remarked in Davos recently, no Israeli in his right mind is willing to think about peace agreements. Even if Netanyahu were to depart from the political scene, such Israeli opposition may remain. This leaves the United States with few levers to pull. It can offer plans for redrawing the map, but that won't get to the heart of the matter. It can promise incentives such as normalization of relations with Saudi Arabia, but the fear of another October 7 will trump any potential benefits. Conditions can be attached to U.S. military aid, but that would be uh, liable to exacerbate Israeli insecurities and, as a consequence, intransigence. Perhaps the path forward is to start smaller. As Herzog noted, the average Israeli wants to know, can we be promised real safety in the future? After the trauma of October 7, it will take time to build such confidence, but its framing hints at where to start. Israel's military leaders have argued that its security requires planning for the war's end and rebuilding Gaza. Netanyahu has resulted any resisted any such discussion, but American pressure might change his calculus. Done right, reconstruction could foster the mutual trust necessary for a more lasting political uh, settlement. Such incrementalism is bound to frustrate everyone, certainly Palestinians who yearn for statehood as well as right-wing Israelis who resist any thought of rebuilding Gaza, but also the Biden administration, which would prefer a big win in this election year. But like any number of previous presidents, Biden is learning that while the dynamics of the Middle East may change, frustration is a constant. That was Netanyahu is far from alone in his hostility to two states by Raphael S. Cohen from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, January 22, 2024. Raphael S. Cohen is the director of the Strategy and Doctrine Program of the Rand Corps Project Air Force. All right, let's turn to some other news now. Uh, this is from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, January 12, 2024. Zelensky rules out ceasefire, saying it would allow Russia to rearm. From the Associated Press. Telen Estonia. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky on Thursday ruled out a ceasefire in his country's war with Russia, saying the Kremlin's forces would use the pause to rearm and regroup before overwhelming Kiev's troops. A pause on the Ukrainian battlefield will not mean a pause in the war, Zelensky said during a visit to Estonia. A pause would play into Russia's hands, he said. It might crush us afterwards. Limited ceasefires have occasionally been proposed since Russia's full-scale invasion in February 2022, but have never taken hold. Both sides are scrambling to replenish their weapons after 22 months of fighting and with the prospect of a protracted conflict. With the front line mostly static during freezing winter weather, they both require artillery shells, missiles, and drones that enable long-range strikes. Zelensky said Moscow is buying artillery shells and missiles from North Korea and drones from Iran. On January 4, the White House cited U.S. intelligence officials as saying that Russia has had acquired ballistic missiles from North Korea and was seeking them from Iran. Zelensky was in the Estonia capital, Tallinn, 
as part of a two-day swing through Baltic countries, which have been among Ukraine's staunchest supporters. Some people in the Baltics worry that the, they could be Moscow's next target. He met with Prime Minister Kaja Kalas, who gave him a shirt with the Estonian word Katseta, the, the will to defend, printed on the front, which Zelensky wore as he addressed the parliament. Tyranny must be defeated. Tyranny must be a loser, Zelensky said. Always, always, always. Zelensky said he and Kalas also discussed Ukrainians who fled to Estonia when the war began, saying at a news conference that any of them who are of draft age need to help Ukraine and be in Ukraine. His comments came as lawmakers in Kiev returned a draft law on mobilization to the government for amendments, saying it might contain human rights violations among other concerns, officials said. The draft law aims to impose restrictions on citizens who have evaded mobilization duties as Ukraine grapples with shortages of military personnel. Zelensky said last month that Ukraine's military wants to mobilize up to 500,000 more troops, but he said he had to but he had asked military leaders to spell out the details on what is a very sensitive matter <clears throat> before he decided whether to grant their wish. The Ukrainian president is pressing allies to provide his country with more support after already receiving billions of dollars in military aid from its Western allies. Ukraine needs more. It needs better weapons, Estonian President Alar Kara said during a joint news conference with Zelensky at the presidential palace. We must boost military production capabilities so that Ukraine might get what it needs, he said. And it's not tomorrow. They should get it today. Kairos noted that European Union countries have so far provided $93 billion in support for Ukraine. But the flow of support has slowed, alarming Ukrainians who would find it hard to stand alone against their bigger neighbor. A plan by the Biden administration to send $60 billion in new funding in Kiev is being held up in Congress. Europe's pledge in March to provide a million artillery shells within 12 months has fallen short with only about 300,000 delivered so far. Zelensky says Ukraine particularly needs air defense systems to fend off Russian aerial onslaughts that have repeatedly hit civilian areas through Moscow, The Moscow insists they are aimed only at military sites. That was Zelensky rules out ceasefires, saying it would allow Russia to rearm from the Associated Press. Out of the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, January 12, 2024. Here's something from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, January 18, 2024. Lawmakers' immunity for anti-Semitic act lifted. Polish Parliament's move means far-right member who doused Hanukkah candles may face charges. From the Associated Press. Warsaw. Poland's lawmakers voted Wednesday to lift the immunity of a far-right colleague who used a fire extinguisher to put out Hanukkah candles during a ceremony in Parliament last month. The vote means that the Confederation Party lawmaker, Gersegoras Braun, can face charges. If convicted of destruction of property, insulting a religious symbol, and hurting a person, he could, he could face up to five years in prison. Prosecutors want to present Braun with seven counts that also apply to earlier incidents of alleged aggression against the former health minister and a public property and public property. Lawmakers voted to lift immunity on each of the seven counts. 
The incident last month was an embarrassment to the new parliament, which was in its first session following October elections, and to the pro-European Union government that would be sworn in the next day. During a Hanukkah celebration, Braun grabbed a fire extinguisher and put out the menorah candles. A member of the Jewish community was sprayed and hurt in the incident unhospitalized. Minutes later, Braun made a brief statement from the parliament lectern while the leader of his party, Christoph Bozak, was presiding. The party later condemned Braun's statement. The lawmakers on Wednesday voted to allow Bozak to keep his position of deputy parliament speaker, saying the party should be uh, represented at that level. But the vast majority abstained or did not take part in the vote. The Hanukkah ceremony was peacefully repeated two days later with the participation of President Andres Duda in a sign that anti-Semitism would not be allowed. Braun was fined by parliament authorities in December. That was lawmakers' immunity for anti-Semitic act lifted from the Associated Press. Out of the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, January 18, 2024. And here's something from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, January 26, 2024. Belgium, France, see anti-Jewish acts surge. Incidents reported since Gaza war include beatings, hate messages, Holocaust denial, groups say. From the Associated Press. Brussels. The number of anti-Semitic acts registered in France and Belgium rose sharply since Hamas's attack on Israel triggered the war in Gaza, according to figures released Thursday. In France, data from the Interior Ministry and the Jewish Community Protection Service watchdog group showed that 1,676 anti-Semitic acts were reported in 2023 compared with 436 in the previous year. According to the Council of Jewish Institutions in France, the country's main Jewish interest group, the number of anti-Semitic acts in the three months that followed the October 7 attack equaled those of the previous three years combined. In neighboring Belgium, UNIA, an independent public body fighting discrimination, said it received 91 reports related to the Israel-Hamas conflict between October 7 and December 7, compared with 57 reports for all of 2022. Most of the reports were remarks or acts considered anti-Semitic, including cases of Holocaust denial, Unia said. In 66 cases, it was clear that targets were Jewish. Most of the cases involved hate messages, more than half of them online, but there were also pu- uh, comments made in public areas. Unia is also collaborating with the Public Prosecutor's Office and police in nine cases of assault and damage, it said. The report cited cases of beatings, graffiti, and the desecration of dozens of graves in the Jewish section of a cemetery close to the city of Shalera. We can therefore speak of a clear increase in reports of anti-Semitic acts since October 7, 2023, Unia said. It also received eight reports of discrimination or hate speech linked to the Palestinian origin, Arab origin, or the Muslim belief of the people targeted between October 7 and December 7. Many European countries have registered a rise in reported anti-Semitic acts and comments since the outbreak of the war. In Italy, anti-Semitic episodes last year hit unprecedented highs with 216 incidents reported in the last three months, compared with 241 for all of the previous year. 
the Anti-Semitism Observatory said 454 incidents were reported in Italy last year, the highest level ever reported in the country. They included violent clashes by anti-Israeli demonstrators trying to reach a trade fair of the, in the northern city of Vicenza on Saturday to protest the presence of an Israeli pavilion at the event. Belgium has a Jewish population of about 29,000, according to the World Jewish Congress. Although most of the Jewish community in the capital Brussels is secular, the port city of Antwerp has a large ultra-Orthodox population and the largest Hasidic community in Europe. In France, which has Europe's largest Jewish and Muslim communities, the Council of Jewish Institutions in France said 57.8% of anti-Semitic acts in 2023 were directed against individuals. They involve physical violence or threatening words and gestures. The group also noted an expo explosion in the number of anti-Semitic acts in schools. The perpetrators of anti-Semitic acts are getting younger. The school is no longer a sanctuary, it said. The health ministry in the Gaza Strip says more than 26,000 people have been killed and 63,000 wounded in the enclave since the October 7 attack in southern Israel in which Hamas militants killed about 1,200 people and took 250 hostages. That was Belgium, France, see anti-Jewish act surge from the Associated Press out of the Los Angeles Times World Section, Friday, January 26, 2024. Right now, more back home from the city and state section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, January 18, 2024. Terminal at SFO to honor, honor the late Senator Feinstein by Karen Garcia. San Francisco International Airport's governing body announced Tuesday that it will re rename its international terminal after Senator Dianne Feinstein, a trailblazer in California politics who died last year. The San Francisco Airport Commission's move came in response to a campaign by a group of notable local figures who called themselves the Dianne Feinstein 100 Plus Committee. The group, chaired by former San Francisco mayor and longtime state assembly speaker Willie Brown, submitted a renaming application to the commission in November. The naming of the San Francisco International Terminal after Senator Feinstein is a fitting tribute to a woman who opened the doors for so many other women leaders throughout the city, state, and nation, said Jim Gonzalez, a spokesperson for the group. Gonzalez said that aside from seeing a new name on the terminal signs, international travelers will have the opportunity to reflect on someone who is an incredible defender of democracy, someone who always stood against authoritarianism and was in her own right a civil rights leader for all communities. Beyond the name change, the airport commission said it would collaborate with the Feinstein 100 Plus Commission on further efforts to celebrate Feinstein's legacy relative to both the airport and the city of San Francisco. After reviewing the proposal to rename the terminal, the airport commission said it found there were compelling reasons to honor the nominee. In a news release, the commission listed several successful efforts led by Feinstein, including negotiating a 30-year lease and use agreement with the airlines that transformed the airport's business and led to the construction of its first international terminal, which opened in 1983. 
The commission also noted Feinstein's role in bringing Bay Area Rapid Transit directly to the International Terminal, supporting SFO's first-in-line baggage screening system for after 9-11 and helping SFO assess new Federal Aviation Administration technology to improve safety and reduce delays. There is no timeline yet for when the renaming and other changes will take place. That was terminal at SFO to honor late Senator Feinstein by Karen Garcia from the City and State section of the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, January 18, 2024. Let's turn to some entertainment news now, starting with this one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, January 16, 2024. Patinkin goes back to the living in death. Amid the pandemic, the actor wasn't sure when he'd work again. Then a script arrived by Ilana Kaplan. After nearly 50 years in Hollywood, Mandy Patinkin still considers himself a hired hand. That's how I like it, the actor says over the phone from his home in upstate New York while inviting his green Pyrenees yellow lab, Mix Becky, to sit with him. That's the career advice of Fram, a celebrity whom he doesn't want to name drop, gave him uh, over dinner back in 1978. All he wanted was to be an actor and to maybe, just maybe, one day sing some songs. That was my whole wish, Patankin says, with a warm, gruff lilt. He hasn't looked back since. Over time, Patankin, 71, built a formidable resume originating roles in Broadway's Evita and Sunday in the Park with George, as well as playing career-defining parts in Barbara Streisand's Oscar-winning classic Liento and Rob Reiner's witty fairy tale, the Princess Bride. Along the way, he also he's also been lauded for his longtime music career. On TV, he's been a resident scene stealer in Garden Variety, a Garden Variety of Sage, but prickly surrogate dads, dads meet advisors on TV. Grim Reaper foreman Rube Sofer in Dead Like Me, Carrie's mentor and veteran CIA uh, officer Saul Berenson on Homeland, and now the commercially Rufus Coatsworth, the so-called world's best detective who reunites with protege Emojin Violet Bean on a cruise ship among the among the elite in the Whodunit Hulu series, Death and Other Details, premiering Tuesday. It was a real mystery they constructed, and a lot of red herrings and a lot to follow, he says. So there would be a number of occasions where I would get so F lost, and I even knew the answers, but I couldn't remember them, that I felt like I was in the mystery for real. Patinkin was approached with the Hulu series during the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, a time when he wasn't sure he'd work again. We were sitting around isolated, masks, you know, all that garbage, and I was just wondering when we'd ever get the opportunities to go back to work or when the world would come back to the living, he says. When he initially received the script for the pilot in 2021, he says he thought, this seems like fun to me. He loved that the show was an ensemble piece and that he'd get to exercise one of his favorite acting skills, putting on an accent, a British one at that. He also found himself back in his comfort zone, portraying a detective, a role he was familiar with thanks to Criminal Minds and Homeland to some degree. The sleuthing is admittedly not something that crosses over into his everyday life. You won't find him on Reddit solving mysteries. I've heard of it, but honestly, I don't know what it is. And he doesn't like Clue. I do wordly and I do many crosswords. 
That's as much of a mystery that I can handle, he says. Before making any rash decisions, he sought the counsel of his family. I don't trust myself, so I gave it to my wife, Catherine Grody, who's ten times smarter than me. A lot more than ten times. A lifetime smarter than me, Patinkin says. And she said, this is good. This is good. Then he gave it to his son, Gideon Grody Patinkin, and Gideon's writing partner, Ewan Wright, who both liked it as well. Finally, Pentakin was sold. It just became a nice, comfortable way to get back to the living, he says, of the project. During the throes of the pandemic, Pentakin found a way to connect with audiences that was unique for him. With the help of Grody Pentakin, Pentakin and Grody became social media stars. They had one rule for their son, however. They needed to review the content first before he posted it. For the most part, he abides by it, he says, and laughs. Their son recorded wildly entertaining videos of his parents answering questions about their secrets to a long marriage and pop culture terms during doing a vote dance to encourage people to elect Joe Biden in the 2020 election and capturing intimate moments of them eating buttered matzah and demonstrating the dance move flossing. Those videos have evolved into what Petinkin calls the family show, a series of live performances with Petinkin, Grody, and Grody Petinkin, who is usually behind the camera, on stage, asking, uh, his, asking his parents questions. People must have nothing to do because they come through to see us, he says in a self-deprecating tone. I feel so sorry for those people. Recently, Patinkin spiced up his social media presence with an Instagram reel featuring him wearing a Ricky Martin tank top, short shorts, and a backward Barbie pink baseball cap. Now that he borrowed from his daughter and daughter-in-law's brother, who was a yoga instructor, to give his family a laugh when he was on a break from shooting death and other details two years ago. He doesn't want to boast, but he's quite pleased at how, many, how beautiful my legs looked. My father had great legs, and few people are aware that I've inherited my father's legs, he says. And I do think that, say nothing else, that photograph gave, me, gave justice to the genetic chain of legdom between my father and myself. Since sharing the clip, to his own surprise, he's been dubbed a fashion icon by the internet. His response? I think without a doubt, as you can see by that photo, I am probably the greatest fashion influencer that has ever lived, he says. The rest of his wardrobe, he insists, is teeming with hiking shirts from REI and the same pair of pants. I love my uniform. My kids make fun of it. It's like camping, comfy clothes. The family business, one could say, has become his main focus. Patinkin and Grody were slated to start in season, a scripted series inspired by their real-life marriage helmed by their son and Wright until it was scrapped by Showtime in June. Patinkin says he was overwhelmed by the pilot, a 30-minute poetic, funny, heartfelt, enjoyable, entertaining record of his and Grody's life together. Now he's trying to find a new home for it. That's my number one dream in terms of the industry, he says. Patinkin even has one of the key selling points on hand. They made it nice and affordable to produce. I love a good budget, he says. I don't like wasting a lot of money. It breaks my heart. Beyond season, Patinkin's outlook is that of a self-described Jew-boo or Jewish Buddhist. He'll take what comes, but he accepts that life is out of control. So he's not fretting over whether death and other details will get a season two. I've been in the business long enough to know if you need to know something, you'll know, Patinkin says. 
Though he might not be worrying about the work, there's just one thing he's mulling over. Whether he and Grody should try psilocybin uh, mushrooms. Patinkin's kids want them to, but he's not entirely sure he'll ever take the task. Catherine's a little more interested, he says. I'm too terrified at this moment. He's not so sure he needs to expand his mind. My mind is opened up uh, to a little too much right now, he says, laughing. I need to cut it down. That was Patinkin Goes Back to the Living in Death by Ilana Kaplan from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, January 16, 2024. We got this one here from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, January 19, 2024. Lewis Black roars off. America's favorite cranky comedian reflects on parking the bus after his final tour by Mark Ballon. Lewis Black is in his element. On stage before an adoring audience, he merely says the name of disgraced former Representative George Santos before the crowd erupts into laughter. The longest-running contributor to Comedy Central's The Daily Show, Black, with his signature raspy voice rising in anger as he stabs his finger in the air, later unleashes a torrent of F-bombs <clears throat> and razor-sharp commentary ranging from the sad state of the world to the idiocy of politicians. These are good times for the 75-year-old comic. Black's most recent special, Tragically I Need You, has racked up more than 1.3 million views on YouTube. Later this year, he will reprise the voice of anger in the Pixar sequel Inside Out 2. At an age when most of his comedic contemporaries have faded away, Black continues to sell out theaters and revel in live performances. The stage is where I feel free, very happy, he said, said a soft-spoken and reflective Black during a Zoom interview from his apartment in New York, in his New York City apartment. It's where I feel the most comfortable. My primary relationship was with my audience and has been for a long time, added the unmarried Black, who never had children. They're the ones that I'm seeing on a regular basis. So, it comes as a shock when Black announced during his act that his days of major touring are over. Turns out the road doesn't go on forever, not even for the <clears throat> infatigable Black, whose final tour, Goodbye Yeller Brick Road, stopped at the The Barrow Theater in Santa Barbara on Friday and the City National Grove of Anaheim on Saturday. The reason is simple. I've got other things I want to do, he said. Black, a polymath who, uh, who graduated with highest honors from the University of North Carolina in playwriting, and earned a master's degree from the Yale School of Drama, wants to write more books and plays and expand his Rantcast podcast. He, he plans to produce more Back in Black segments for The Daily Show, which feature him writhing on the news of the day and railing against injustice and stupidity wherever he sees it. One thing Black won't be doing is following in, in uh, Jerry Turner's footsteps and going on The Golden Bachelor. The whole thing is reprehensible and disturb disturbing and beyond comprehension, Black says. Grow up. You're not supposed to be out there. It's time to be an adult, you know. Do something adult. Over the course of his 35-year career, Black estimates that he has done more than 2,000 shows, performing in every state. Some years he has averaged 250 or more concerts. He has played for audiences in Europe, New Zealand, Canada, Hong Kong, and Australia. Black has sold out renowned theaters such as Carnegie Hall and Broadway's Richard Rogers Theater, 
along with grungy clubs in, in college towns. He regularly stops in smaller places like Bismarck, North Dakota, and Rapid City, South Dakota, to pick up another week of playing, he said. They are thrilled when you come to play for them. In his distinguished career, Black has written 40 plays and three best-selling books, released 12 comedy albums, won two Grammy Awards, starred in two HBO specials, and appeared in several movies and TV shows, including as Professor Crawley on The Big Bang Theory. Black credits narcissistic, corrupt, and delusional po politicians and business leaders for providing him with a steady stream of material for his cautistic wit. Stupidity is an easy target, and a lot of what I deal with is stupidity, Black said. As much as they love Reagan, he's an F idiot. As much as they love each, love each one of these guys, they're idiots. It's not the tedium or the loneliness of the road that has led Black to quit touring. He has enjoyed seeing the country from the windows of his bus, along with the bus itself. It's bigger than my first apartment in New York, he said. Time on the road allows him to watch CNN, MSNBC, and even some Fox News, along with reading The Week and The New York Times, searching for tidbits of hypocrisy and craveness he can work into his act. Chicago, Portland, Oregon, and Seattle rank high on his list of favorite cities, as do Denver, a great city with a phenomenal F place to eat uh, called Sam's Number no. 3, and Fort Worth, Texas. It has a nice center to wander around, and the Bass Performance Hall has a, a spectacular sound. If the sound is good, it makes a huge difference. Southern California, however, holds little allure for him, as much as he appreciates it, the audiences. His, his complaint will resonate with most residents. I've been sitting on the road for hours to get somewhere, and that's supposed to be 20 minutes. Hours? It's, un it's insane, he said. I don't understand how people live like that. Black grew up in the Washington, D.C. suburb of Silver Spring, Maryland. His mother was a substitute teacher. His father worked as a mechanical engineer. Fittingly, Black was a fussy, colicky baby, a harbinger of things to come. Raised in a Jewish household, he inherited his parents' appreciation of education and his mother's fondness for shouting. My mother had this thing that if you yell at somebody, it means you love them, said Black, a world-class yeller. Not really healthy, but that's what I heard. The young Black wanted to become a playwright. For years, stand-up was a side gig, although he regularly snapped up new albums by comedic heroes like Lenny Bruce, Richard Pryor, and Bob Newhart. Black honed his com comic chops in the 1980s while serving as playwright-in-residence of West Bank Cafe's Downstairs Theater Bar in New York. Besides overseeing more than a thousand works on stage, including a few of his plays, Black emceed every show, tried out new jokes and routines along the way. Audiences responded. By the end of the decade, he decided to make comedy his main focus. Black struggled for years on about $500 a week, but slowly found his comedic voice. In the mid-1990s, he began making semi-regular appearances on NBC's Late Night with Conan O'Brien. That led to The Daily Show in 1996. The National Exposure turbocharged Black's career, giving him a level of success he never could have imagined. As much as he likes writing plays and acting, comedy has brought Black the greatest satisfaction. I enjoy it all, but I've always liked stand-up the most because it allows me to write, direct, and act, he said. 
and I've always loved that the ultimate arbiter of any performance has been the audience and not some schmuck producer or executive producer. Hard to believe, then, that he's giving it all up. With the road nearly in his rearview mirror, Black said he's signing off with a smile, sort of. Over the years, the frustrations have mounted. Black said he would have liked to have had his own network Netflix special and a regular role on a TV sitcom, perhaps portraying the irascible but lovable character he's perfected over the decades. Hollywood never really got me, he said. Getting older also annoys the hell out of him. Anyone who's over the age of 65 says that these are the best years of your life. You take the back of your hand and you slap them as hard as you can, Black said. Aging sucks. There's nothing fun about it. Your close friends call and tell you they went to the doctor today, and then you just wait for the other shoe to drop. It's just so awful. Finally, Donald Trump's political ascendancy has spawned a new specimen of heckler. Loud, proud, and aggressive, MAGA diehards have occasionally interrupted Black's show, much to his chagrin. In the entire time that I've worked as a comic, I've talked about every president, said Black, an equal opportunity offender. You like me until I didn't like your guy? Really? You jackass? But when he's truly locked in and things are flowing, Black said he loses himself with the audience pushing and pulling him to higher and higher comedic, comedic heights. These transcendent moments make it all worthwhile. So is this really, so is this retirement thing for real? Does Black really plan to permanently park the tour bus? Or like the Who, Muttley Crew, and even Frank Sinatra before him, will he return to a city near you after the boredom sets in and the adulation wanes? Is this really, truly the end of Black's days as a road warrior? Black seems to have left himself a little wiggle room. He has told crowds that he might come back as an unannounced opening act. When pressed further, Black admits that he might enjoy playing arenas again, as he did in 2023, as part of Burt Kreischer's fully loaded comedy festival. I just hope that I've given people some relief from what they're going through, he says, which has only gotten crazier as I've gotten older. That was Lewis Black Roars Off by Mark Ballin from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, January 19, 2024. Mark Ballin is a former staff writer, staff reporter for the Times, Forbes, and Incorporated Magazine. He teaches an advanced writing class at USC and lives in Fullerton. And speaking of The Daily Show, a familiar figure seems to be coming back. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, January 25th, 2024, John Stewart will return to The Daily Show. The program's former host will come back on Monday nights for the election season. By Meredith Blake. John Stewart is returning to his roots. The comedian will host the Daily Show on Monday nights beginning February 12 and continuing through the 2024 election cycle, Comedy Central announced Wednesday. Stewart's role will also resume Stewart will also resume his role as executive producer on the show and is committed through 2025. Other members of the Daily Show news team will host on the remaining nights of the week. Episodes will air on Comedy Central and be available to stream on Paramount Plus the next day. John Stewart is the voice of our generation, and we are honored to have him return to Comedy Central's The Daily Show to help us all make sense of the insanity and division rolling, uh, roiling the country as we enter the election season, said Chris McCarthy, President and Chief Executive of Showtime MTV Entertainment Studios. 
In our age of staggering hypocrisy and performative politics, John is the perfect person to puncture the empty rhetoric and provide much-needed clarity with his brilliant wit. Stewart's return, even on a part-time basis, is a major win for Comedy Central and its signature late-night program, and will be cheered by many liberal-leaning viewers who saw the host as an essential voice in American politics, not merely a comedian. It coincides with what is sure to be a contentious presidential election year, featuring a likely rematch between President Biden and former President Trump, with vital stakes for American democracy at a time of declining trust in traditional news sources. The news comes a few months after the abrupt cancellation of Stewart's Apple TV Plus talk show, The Problem with Jon Stewart, and more than a year after his successor Trevor Noah stepped down, leaving The Daily Show in a protracted state of limbo. Throughout 2023, the show cycled through a list of celebrity guest hosts, including Leslie Jones and Cal Penn, while the quest for a permanent replacement remained elusive. Former correspondent Hassan Minaj appeared to be a frontrunner for the job until a report in The New Yorker questioned the accuracy of stories he told in his stand-up, which the comedian has continued to defend. Roy Wood Jr., a longtime correspondent who was also viewed as a leading contender, announced in October that he would be leaving the show. Frustration about the lack of a succession plan became apparent at the Emmys last week, where the Daily Show with Trevor Noah won the award for a talk series, and where Wood would be seen mouthing the words, please hire a host on stage. Stewart took over as host and executive producer of the Comedy Central program in 1999 and helped give it a a more sharply topical focus. Beginning with a chaotic 2000 presidential election through the September 11, 2020-01 terrorist attacks, the Iraq War, and the rise of the Tea Party, The Daily Show became a must-watch source for political and media commentary. Stewart became known for his pointed critiques of conservative media, particularly Fox News, and for his in-depth interviews with politicians and other newsmakers. During his tenure, The Daily Show also became a pipeline for comedy talent, helping advance the careers of John Oliver, Stephen Colbert, Steve Carell, Samantha Bee, Jessica Williams, and others. Stewart departed the, uh, the show in 2015, just as Trump began his ascent to the White House. After a deal with HBO that was ultimately unfruitful, Stewart created The Problem with Jon Stewart, which premiered in 2021, but was canceled in October 2023. He also continued to advocate for medical benefits for 9-11 first responders, a cause he also championed while on The Daily Show. Since Stewart signed off almost nine years ago, the late-night landscape has transformed dramatically with a period of expansion followed by painful contraction. Political comedy boomed during the Trump presidency with shows such as Full Frontal with Samantha Bee and Patriot Act with Hassan Minaj giving voice to the frustrations of many viewers. The rising number of shows offered great opportunity for women and people of color long shut out of late-night comedy as writers and hosts. But the rise of streaming services and on-demand viewing also made it tough for new shows to break through and led to new sources of creative tension, factors Stewart is no doubt aware of. The Problem, which featured hour-long, in-depth episodes about a single subject, was critically well-received, but did not stir regular conversation the way that The Daily Show once did.
Stewart and its producers reportedly chose to walk away from the series over creative differences with Apple over coverage of sensitive issues such as China and artificial intelligence. That was John Stewart will return to The Daily Show by Meredith Blake from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, January 25th, 2024. All right, and here we have this from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, January 26, 2024. Shore finds a role fit for an Oscar. Comedian has ideas for a feature about Richard Simmons. First step, a short by Matt Brennan. Park City, Utah. Where is Polly Shore? As the story goes, the court jester, a 10-minute short about Richard Simmons on the set of Ellen for, uh, from filmmaker Jake Lewis, landed at the Sundance Film Festival in answer to that question. Well, not at, if we're being precise. During the filming, starring Shore as the colorful fitness guru playing to raucous applause in the basement of the Cabin nightclub on January 19th, its icy-cold brick-lined bullring of a dance floor laid out with six rows of black metal chairs. Depicting Simmons as he befriends an overlooked segment producer on Ellen amid the press tour for a sweatin' to the oldies five, the short is a prelude to a planned feature-length biographic of the reclusive aerobics instructor who has disavowed any involvement in the project. Which is a shame, Shore admits, though he hopes the work itself may persuade him otherwise. Hopefully, Richard Simmons, we will see we, we did not make fun of him, Shore said, noting that the short would be available to stream on Lewis's YouTube page. We treated him with the utmost respect. Likening the role to that of Brendan Fraser in The Whale and Mickey Work in The Wrestler, Shore sees that Simmons' biopic, which is produced by the Wolper organization and currently searching for a writer as a comeback vehicle. As he, as he said to the crowd during an introduction come stand up set preceding the screening, there's no reason I can't get an F Oscar. After the court jester rolled, I caught up with the Encino Man and Biodome star wearing a Pepto pink hoodie under a dark winter coat in the empty back bar at the cabin. Question, what to you is the most interesting thing about Richard Simmons coming at him as an actor? Answer, his selflessness. It was always about helping people. When you watched him, he felt very sincere when it came to helping overweight people or people that had mental issues. It was also very silly and funny and goofy and didn't take himself seriously. You always hear these kinds of self-help people, but they're very serious. There's nothing really funny about him. And he was F hilarious. You know what I mean? Just wacky. If you were watching Letterman and they're like, up next Richard Simmons, you weren't changing the channel. Like you knew for sure it was going to be fun. Question. When you were getting into a character for the short, was there a particular thing like the hair or the tank or watching a particular clip that really helped you connect? Answer. At the end of the day, it's always about the script and the story. So I thought the fact that they had this overweight kid that was that was a fumbling producer, and then I saved him at save him at the end. I just really think it was about this particular story. Question: You have a vision for? Do you have a vision of what you want the final script to feature of the future to look like? Answer: You see so many biopics like the Elton John one, Rocket Man, and the Freddie Mercury one, Bohemian Rhapsody, and all these are unbelievable. I'm like, wow, I haven't seen that weird. 
I haven't seen that Weird Al one, the Weird Al Yankovic story, but I heard it's really great. And I, Tanya, and all these different ones. So for this, I want it to be more dramatic than silly. I think it should be like sweet and soft and sincere. You're going to have the crazy moments, but it shouldn't be a goof test. Little Miss Sunshine, a tone like that is sort of the vibe. That's what I'm feeling. Question. How did it feel when Sim Simmons made that post saying, I have I had nothing to do with this, and what would you like to say to him if you had the opportunity? Answer. I think he's in a place right now where that's a knee-jerk reaction. And I think that if he sat down with me and the producer, he'd want to be a part of it. But the good part about the business is there's a lot of unauthorized biopics. There's actually more unauthorized biopics than authorized biopics. But at the end of the day, and again, I've said this a hundred times, I'm not coming in at it in a vindictive way. I'm coming at it in a very sincere, authentic, sweet way, which is why I think this is going to work. At some point, I think he'll come around. Question. What would you say is the biggest thing you have in common with Simmons as you understand him? Answer. I think one thing that we have in common is our flamboyance and our explosiveness and our craziness and our silliness and our heart. I think we care about people. I've been touring for 30 years and I sell out shows not so much because, oh, they saw my Netflix special or they saw this funny thing. People connect with me and all my films have always had a lot of heart. That was Shore Finds a Role Fit for an Oscar by Matt Brennan from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, January 26, 2024. This article is taken from the January 20 edition of the Wide Shot, a weekly newsletter about everything happening in the business of entertainment. Sign up at latimes.com slash newsletters. All right, now we're going to start reading some articles from the Jewish Journal, January 19th through the 25th, 2024. We start off with the editor's notes section. This is called The Most Credible Voices to Defend Israel by David Suisa. A key principle of success is to adapt to changing times. When the game changes, it's best not to use the old playbook. The world changed radically for the Jews on October 7, and yet it seems we haven't changed our playbook. There's no better indicator of how that world has changed than the latest Harvard Caps Harris poll that shows an alarming development among young Americans. When asked whether the grievances of Palestinians justify Hamas killing over 1,200 Israelis and kidnapping over 250 civilians, 60% of Americans 18 through 24 agreed such violence could be justified, with half of that group supporting Hamas. On the question of Israel's statehood, a third of younger Americans believe Israel has no right to exist as a homeland for the Jewish people. Regarding the long-term solutions to the conflict, a major respondent, a majority responded that Israel should be ended and given to Hamas and the Palestinians. It's hard to overstate the danger of this emerging worldview among young Americans. But instead of looking for traditional solutions to this dangerous situation, maybe we ought to look for a new playbook. A playbook that focuses on finding more compelling and credible spokespeople for the Jewish for the Jewish state, like for example Israeli Arabs. For starters, they represent the stereotype of the brown and oppressed that the new generation worships and elevates. These Arabs are actually living in the land of those dreaded white Jewish colonialist oppressor oppressors. One would assume these brown Arabs would strengthen the case of Jew haters. It turns out they strengthen Israel, Israel's case. Consider the story of a proud Palestinian born in Israel named Nusir Yassin, 
better known as the hugely popular global video blogger Nas Daily. Before October 7, he considered himself Palestinian first and Israeli second. On October 9, he posted on X, I realized that if Israel were to be invaded like that again, we would not be safe, and I do not want to live under a Palestinian government, which means I only have one home, even if I'm not Jewish, Israel. So from today forward, I view myself as an Israeli-Palestinian. Israeli first, Palestinian second. Yassin is not alone. As reported in the Israeli publication Globes, a new study shows that an overwhelming majority of the Israeli Arab public opposes the surprise attack by Hamas, supports Israel's right to defend itself, and even expressed a willingness to volunteer to help civilians who were harmed during the attack. The findings the report concluded indicate a turning point in the attitudes of the Arab public, in that in previous clashes expressed support and solidarity with the Palestinian side. This is not to suggest that Israeli Arabs will suddenly lose sympathy for the Palestinian cause. They won't. What it does suggest is that the extreme and unprecedented violence of October 7 has shaken many of them, just as it has shaken so many of us. As the study shows, almost 80% of Israeli Arabs oppose the Hamas attack and 85% oppose the kidnapping of civilians. 66% of the respondents answered that Israel has the right to defend itself, compared with only 6% who said that it does not. These Israeli Arabs are not just numbers in a survey. They are real people, many of them deeply engaged in Israeli society. They are doctors and nurses, lawyers and architects, waiters and maitre d's, grocers and pharmacists, judges and members of parliament, tech entrepreneurs and college students. When they saw the invasion of their country on October 7th, they took it personally. They didn't react like the pro-Hamas demonstrators who are flooding the U.S. streets, tearing down posters of Israeli hostages, desecrating the Lincoln Memorial, and intimidating Jewish college students. No, they reacted as if some monsters invaded their homes, which it did. Because they value the freedom and opportunities that Israel has brought to them, Israeli Arabs can become our most powerful allies. It's time we enlist their support in a dignified way. They deserve a chance to become an integral part of the public face of Israel. We should initiate a major outreach effort and seek their input. This campaign, once formulated, should become a top priority for 2024. At the very least, this will turn the tables on the new generation of Jew haters. Instead of seeing white Jews make make the case for Israel, they will see brown Arabs telling them how lucky they are to live in the Jewish state. Showing a new face of Israel that includes Israeli Arabs is not just a good playbook, it's also the truth. That's the most incredible voices to defend Israel by David Suisa from the Editor's Notes section. Alright, on to something from the Columnist section. This is called The Times They Are Changing by Dan Schnur. The 21st century has not been the kind to has not been kind to the Los Angeles Times. After more than 100 years of local and family ownership, the Times was sold in 2000 to an out-of-state buyer and then changed owners twice more in the next 18 years. By the time Los Angeles billionaire Patrick Soon-Shiong purchased the paper in 2018, it had experienced massive circulation losses, large staff reductions, and a perceptible reputational decline throughout the Southland, California, and nationally. Soon-Shiong promised a heavily 
to heavily invest in the paper to restore it to its former greatness, a commitment that was reinforced by his decision to hire respected veteran journalist Kevin Moretta as the Times executive editor. When the Times had retained quality newsroom leaders such as Austin Butner and Dean Bakui, the and significant numbers of talented reporters and editors during this tumultuous period, this appeared to be the first opportunity in a long time when the combination of stable ownership, strong management, and accomplished journalists could return the paper to its former levels of success. But Moretta resigned a position last week, and while the gossip about his growing estrangement from Sun Xiong focused largely on financial losses, circulation and advertising declines, and ongoing struggles with the transition to a digital platform. But it has become clear that a primary reason for Moretta's departure was a strong disagreement of how the Times would cover the war between Israel and Hamas, and more specifically, on whether reporters who had publicly criticized Israel should be allowed to cover the conflict. Back in early in November, several Times journalists had signed an open letter condemning Israel's response to the October 7 attacks and including references to atrocities, genocide, and apartheid. Moretta decided that Times employees who had signed the letter would not be permitted to cover the war for a period of three months. When Moretta announced his decision, he cited the paper's long-standing ethics policy, saying that a fair-minded reader of the Times news coverage should not be able to discern the private opinions of those who contributed to that coverage or to infer that the organization is promoting any agenda. This reflects the standards that most, leg- that most legacy news organizations have maintained since the early 20th century, attempting to present the news without taking sides. While many committed partisans on both sides of the political aisle can point to examples of mainstream news coverage that did present information in a biased way, most of this country's major media outlets strive for the even-handedness reflected in Moretta's statement. Moretta did not fire the journalists who violated the policy. He did not suspend them. He did not even say that they could never uh, cover issues relating to the Middle East or Israel again. He simply determined that for 90 days, the Times employees who signed a letter vilifying Israel for defending its people against a grotesque terrorist attack should not be involved in covering the conflict. Imagine the public outcry if he had made a similarly tepid decision regarding a Times staff writer who was a white supremacist, a homophobe, or a serial sexual harasser. But his boss clearly felt otherwise. While Soon Chiang denied that Moretta's decision was not the reason for his departure, he did say that he was disappointed that Moretta had not discussed the decision with him. Meanwhile, the New York Times reported that some members of the Soon Chiang family raised objections to Mr. Moretta's decision. Soon Chiang's daughter Nika has aggressively advocated for progressive endorsements and news coverage since her father purchased the paper. Last October, she posted the following statement on Twitter. It's not journalistic malpractice to describe the state of Israel as apartheid state. It's a well-established, it's well-established in international law. The war in Gaza will not end anytime soon. The tensions and violence that have roiled the Middle East for centuries will last even longer, and the ugly anti-Semitism that has re-emerged with a vengeance since October 7 will last longer than that. I wonder and worry how the Sun Xiong family will allow the newspaper to cover, cover these issues in the future. So should you. That's The Times They Are Changing by Dan Schnur from the Columnist section. Dan Schnur is the U.S. politics editor for the Jewish Journal. He teaches courses on politics, communication, and leadership at UC Berkeley, USC, and Pepperdine.
He hosts the monthly webinar, the Dan Schneer Political Report for the Los Angeles World Affairs Council and Town Hall. Follow Dan's work at www.danschneerpolitics.com. Here's something from the columnist section, Holding On to the Light by Rabbi and Cantor Eva Robbins. That spark that creates light is the magical moment when the darkness becomes less pervasive, when it begins to shift from its enormity and lessens its hold on us. Every cell in our being responds and reverberates within, igniting a sense of possibility and hope. In times such as ours, it is the salve we hunger for, the medicine that nourishes, whether you are rich or poor. It is unlike the glow that pervaded the universe when God said, let there be light. When Hanukkah comes to an end, we wonder how we can hold on to the light. How we can continue with to how it can how can it continue to flicker even dimly within our core being so that it accompanies us through repeated challenges and the vast cascading events that persist throughout the world? How can we stoke the flame, especially as Jews in this country, amidst the fear, intimidation, and insecurity we all feel? How do we let the light burn off the negativity and disgust that rises when we see injustice prevail? How do we seize the moment, nurture the flame so it is like the burning flesh that shone brightly before Moses without destroying itself? Well, as Elizabeth Barrett Browning once said, let me count the ways. Social scientists, movement-slash-exercise gurus, musicians, artists, healers, clergy, and mystics all have their own solutions. Within every discipline, there are masters who have perfected a way to expand one's vision, move beyond the limitations we often feel, and find that inner flame. For the psychologist, it's about reinforcing positivity, shifting our perceptions to find the good, the productive, and gratitude. For the movement and body-centered guru, it's about feeling one's energy, have it flow while discovering strength, agility, and wholeness. For the musician, it's resonating with the sounds and the vibrations that sync with it with our heartbeat. For the artist, it's about feeling free to express one's creativity, innovative ways of thinking, forming, and shaping new objects, or perhaps exploring expressive palettes of color or shimmering textures. For the healer, it's focusing on well-being and self-care, nourishing the senses, quieting the mind. For clergy, it's tapping into deeds that nourish others, assigning time for prayer and Torah study. And for the mystic, it's identifying with the name, attaching oneself in devekut to the Holy One through a meditation, imagining an elevated journey through uh, the many chambers beyond in, in a global chariot. Any one of these becomes a doorway to nurture the very essence of one's passions, so the flame is constantly aglow. My teacher, Rabbi Mel Gottlieb, would remind us of the Kotzker Rebbe's great teaching. Any way is a way, as long as you make it a way. The most astounding affinity all these disciplines have is that it is in the brain where, where change, transformation, and enlightenment truly occur. And what is most comforting of all is that neuroscientists keep reminding us that this organ is one of the most plastic and malleable uh, uh, we possess. What is even more assuring is that learning something new is the greatest gift you can give yourself for longevity. Paradoxically, it is the home of our most nourishing as well as our most destructive hormones. It is the place that can determine 
whether we see the glass as half full or half empty. And ultimately, it is how we choose to feel certain activities which will predispose us to one over the other. How comforting it is to know that paying attention to something fulfilling that nurtures your soul can bring a sense, wholeness, uh, and peace, and perhaps even prolong your life. The ability to keep the light burning is not the issue. We all have that capability. It is a matter of choice and intention. Deciding to follow our heart's passions and stoke the fires within our soul is what keeps the flame alive. It takes consistent dedication. In a culture so driven by multitasking, pervasive interruptions, and constant noise, we must be driven to find what is most pleasurable, productive, and engaging of our being. As we start the secular new year, it is an opportune moment for uh, to truly focus on what brings you joy and what feeds your soul. When you do, the light will be radiant and will find your whole being. That was Holding On to the Light by Rabbi and Cantor Eva Robbins from the Columnist section. Eva Robbins is a rabbi, cantor, artist, and the author of Spiritual Surgery, A Journey of Healing Mind, Body, and Spirit. Also from the columnist section, this is called Don't Forget About Hashem by Kylie Aura Lobel. Immediately after October 7, I couldn't stop doom-scrolling through social media and checking my news feed. Everything I saw made me feel depressed, anxious, and scared. I couldn't sleep, I wasn't eating right, and I couldn't think straight. But every night, when I cuddled with my daughters before bedtime, I'd feel better. When my husband and I would talk about what was going on, I'd instantly calm down. While learning Torah over the phone with my study partner in Lakewood, I'd become a little more censored. Centered. Why? All of these things brought me closer to Hashem. Receiving and spreading Hashem's love is our mission as the Jewish people, and yet so often these days, that's being left out of the conversation. Many people are afraid sharing stories about anti-Semitism and the atrocities happening to Jews in Israel and around the world. Trust me, I'm very familiar with it. Whenever I talk about being Jewish on social media, I get hundreds of anti-Semites coming after me. It's not very encouraging, but I choose not to focus on it. Instead, I focus on what's right in front of me, Hashem. So many of us are spiritually dehydrated right now and feel worn out and beaten down but there are ways to turn this around. For instance, whether or not we keep Shabbat, Shabbat exists. We can choose to step into this holy day and feel calm and collected. We can sit around the Friday night uh, table and with family and friends, eat a soul-satisfying chicken soup, and laugh and cry and feel less alone. We can go to synagogue and listen to an inspiring speech from our rabbi and connect with our community. During the week, we can learn Torah on our own or with a friend, or we can tune into a podcast for a few minutes per day. And we can pray from a prayer book or simply uh, from our hearts. Hashem hears every request, big or small. As human beings, our perspective is limited, but Hashem can grant miracles. He can turn everything around in an instant. I know because I've seen it. In my 20s, I was constantly struggling and pleading to Hashem for help. There were so many times I couldn't afford my basic necessities. I'd tell him, please send money to pay my bills. And then I'd say, I trust you, Hashem. Now I'm going to stop worrying about it and go on with my day. You know, you'll t- I know you'll take care of me. Within minutes, I'd have the money in my bank account. This is just a small step, small example, but it's one that I believe 
anyone can learn and implement in their everyday lives. It's important to put down your phone and stop looking at everything bad. Instead of what you can do to connect to Hashem, think of what you can do to connect to Hashem. It can be as simple as saying a blessing before you eat a certain food or saying Shema or telling your children how much you love them. If you're having trouble solving a problem and you know you've tried your best to figure it out yourself, ask Hashem for help. Then leave it in His hands and see what happens. Remember, human beings have free will. Hashem gives us choice to, so that we can have an authentic relationship with Him. If our sins immediately led to punishment and our good deeds immediately resulted in rewards, an authentic relationship would not be possible. But because free will exists, bad things happen. People make bad choices all the time. We don't have to focus on the bad. We can focus on all the good. We can think more broadly about what happens in the world and say, Hashem is in control. I trust in Him. This is difficult at times, but it's what gets me through. Since I started believing in Hashem, my life has improved greatly, and it has been the ultimate source of comfort since October 7. Are you ready to open your eyes and see Hashem? I know He's ready for you. That was Don't Forget About Hashem by Kylie Ora Lobel from the Columnist section. Kali Oralobel is the community editor of the Jewish Journal. Here's something else from the colonist section of uh, right here, Jewish Journal. This is called Keeping the Light Aglow by Martin Shapiro. There is a remarkable exhibition currently at the Skirball Cultural Center called This Light is Ours, Activist Foot Photographers of the Civil Rights Movement. It was organized by the Center for Dem Documentary Expression and art in the Salt Lake City and Cleveland's Maltz Museum of Jewish Heritage, and is on view through February 25th. I've seen it four times, not just because I find it so informative and challenging, but because my daughter Alyssa happens to be the curator for the present edition of this show. If she weren't, I probably would have only seen it twice. The show consists of 157 photographs, as well as 15 archival objects added by the Skirball that together tell the story of those who in the 1960s put their lives on the line for civil rights. The nine photographers whose work is featured remind us of the sacrifices made by black Americans and their allies during one of the most difficult times in U.S. history. At a moment when black and black Jewish relations are particularly strained over the different narratives regarding the Middle East, I was moved by the unity displayed back then. You might be familiar with the iconic photo from the 1965 march from Selma to Montgomery in support of voter rights. There is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., arms linked with a number of his colleagues, among them John Lewis, then chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and later a very much revered member of the U.S. House of Representatives. Also in the front row, you will find Rabbi Abram Joshua Heschel. A close friend of Dr. King, Rabbi Heschel was determined to be there for black Americans when they needed him most. Heschel isn't the only Jew portrayed in the exhibition who, inspired by his Jewish values, cared more for justice than his own safety. The show includes a heartbreaking display created by the Skirball about three young volunteers, James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner. The latter two, Jewish New Yorkers, whose effort to register black voters cost them their lives. They didn't die in vain. Historians argue that their murders in June of 1964 in Philadelphia, Mississippi, were instrumental in gathering the support that led to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and later to the Voting Rights Act of 65. 
In a well-deserved honor, the three martyrs were awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Obama in 2014. The show also includes a photo of a bloodied older man sitting along the side of the road. It turns out that he is Rabbi Arthur Leiliveld of Cleveland's Fairmount Temple. He had been badly beaten with a tire iron at a 1964 voter registration campaign event in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Next to the photograph, headphones offer visitors the chance to listen to the voice of photographer Herbert Randall, who explains that when he stopped to assist the rabbi, Leiliveld told him in no uncertain terms, Photographer, take the picture. He was more interested in documenting the brutality than in stopping the bleeding. But in my mind, the most touching example of the Jewish support for civil rights is a photo of a man with one leg on crutches, wearing a yarmulke and sweating profusely as he persevered doing 54 grueling miles on the trek from Selma to Montgomery. His name was Jim Leatherer, an amputee who marched alongside Dr. King and other activists. Last month, my daughter gave a tour of the exhibition to the celebrated civil rights leader, Dr. Bernard Lafayette. Dr. Lafayette paused in front of this photo and said, I remember this guy. John Lewis and I kept asking him to take a break because we thought he was going to pass out during the march, but he insisted on continuing on. How pointed it is to recall a period when black and Jewish Americans were literally marching arm in arm. During these trying times, we must do the work to keep the light aglow. A step in the right direction is the Carr's Family Foundation's gift to the Skirball, highlighting and fostering connections between the black and Jewish communities. As we celebrate what we have done together in the past, may we write a new chapter that one day observers will view with awe and appreciation. That was Keeping the Light Aglow by Martin Shapiro, Morton Shapiro from the Colonist Section. Morton Shapiro is the former president of Williams College and Northwestern University. His most recent book with Gary Shul Morrison is Minds Wide Shut, How the New Fundamentalisms Divide Us. Now let's go to this section, Rebbe's Teachings. This is called Bo Confronting Evil. And this is by Rabbi uh, Menachem M. Schneerson. The third section of the book of Exodus opens as God tells Moses to come, Bo, in Hebrew, to Pharaoh in order to announce the eighth plague. Two more plagues follow, after which the Jews are finally released from slavery and sent forth from Egypt. In Parshat Bo, we witness the mighty Egyptian empire brought to its knees, its idols crushed, and its arrogant Pharaoh reduced to begging for his life. It also includes the origin and details of the observances meant to commemorate the Exodus, the Passover sacrifice and holiday, and the consecration of the firstborn. As such, Parashat Bo is the parashah of the Exodus, not just the background, build-up, or aftermath of the Exodus, but the Exodus itself. Even before the actual signal to leave is given, we feel the eminence of redemption. Pharaoh's courtiers are urging him to stop the senseless refusal to let the people go, and the people are collecting their long overdue payment for their work for, uh, for the work from the Egyptian populace and preparing to leave. It seems strange then that the parashah is named Bo, come after God's instruction to Moses to come to Pharaoh. The fact that Moses must come to Pharaoh indicates that Pharaoh has the upper hand and that he is the dominant authority. Furthermore, why are the ten plagues spread over two parashiot? 
it would seem more logical that the preceding parasha be devoted entirely to the theme of crushing the power of Egypt through the plagues, while this parasha with the preparations and details of the Exodus per se. The Zohar notes that God did not tell Moses to go to Pharaoh, but to come to Pharaoh, meaning come with me to Pharaoh. This was because beginning with the eighth plague, God sent out to break Pharaoh himself to destroy his power from its core. In order to do so, it was necessary to confront Pharaoh in his power seat, the setting from which he drew and commanded his ominous influence. This meant not only going to Pharaoh's throne room, where Moses had gone before, but also meeting him spiritually in the depths of his evil. When God showed Moses the noxious spiritual found of Pharaoh's evil power, Moses was afraid to approach it. God therefore reassured him that he would accompany him and help him overcome Pharaoh. Thus, the underlying thought behind the words come to Pharaoh is the confrontation with Pharaoh's essence. It is here that he and all the evil he represents can be decisively broken. Breaking Pharaoh's power was the essential prerequisite for the exodus. Indeed, it was the essence of the exodus. Egypt, Egypt, with all its opulent wealth and imposing awesome edifices, was the very embodiment of materialism. Even its religion, its gods, and its distorted vision of the afterlife were materialistic. The exodus was the release from this oppressive and constricting philosophy and lifestyle in order to live a life dedicated to God's transcendent reality. In order to be free, the chain had to be broken. Pharaoh had to be crushed in the very height and seat of his power. In this light, far from contradicting the tone of the rest of the parasha, the term bow actually reveals its true message. In our own personal lives, as we undergo our own individual redemptions, which will collectively lead us to the ultimate general redemption, we must take our cue from how God told Moses to crush Pharaoh, to aim for the jugular vein, and attack evil at its root. Everyone has his or her personal Pharaoh, the aspect of life where opposition to holiness is most acute. This is where our primary assault should be directed, and when this Pharaoh is vanquished, the other obstacles in life will follow suit. Further, we need not be afraid of this inner Pharaoh. Just as God accompanied Moses into Pharaoh's chamber and did battle with him himself, we can call upon God to accompany our inner Moses as it confronts our inner Pharaoh and to help us destroy it. That was Bo Confronting Evil from Rebbe's Teachings by Rabbi Menachem M. Schneerson. This is from the teachings of the Liberal Victor Rebbe, Rabbi M. Menachem M. Schneerson. The Rebbe's inspirational teachings on the Torah portion can be found in the Quixote Humash pro, uh, produced by Chabad House uh, Publications. Sponsored by Chabad of California and loving memory of Rabbi Zemach Yehoshua Kunin, emissary of the Rebbe and director of Chabad of Century City. All right, let's wrap it up with a few little ads. And let's start with this uh, one. Maybe not exactly an ad, but here we go. This is called Maurice Sherbani and there's no author. A man of many talents, Maurice was the first and foremost a romantic and an artist. He lived a full and eventful 93 years on several continents and had three great loves, Doris, Faye, and Rosemary. Born in Iraq in 1930, he survived the Farhud, a pogrom that traumatized Baghdad's Jews in 1941. He fled two years later to India with his family at the age of 14, 
His passion for film and motion pictures developed in Bombay's premier movie theater in Kalaba, and he spent hours drawing impeccable portraits of matinee idols Tyrone Power, Clark Gable, Kirk Douglas, and the many others he admired on the silver screen. But it was not until he spent his 20s as an import-export businessman in Osaka, Japan, entertaining in nightclubs in the 1950s with a voice that matched Dean Martin's, that he was finally able to emigrate to the United States and pursue his ultimate passion as an actor in the motion picture industry. A self-taught artist in every field, he could draw anything and play anything on the guitar without lessons. He became a composer of flamenco music with an international following of budding classical guitars playing his music on YouTube. His passion was to entertain, and he did, from Baghdad to Bombay to Kobe, Japan to Hollywood, California. He never stopped entertaining anyone he was around, be it with music, his good and not-so-good jokes, drawings, and acting. Maurice lived his dreams. He will be missed, especially by his niece and nephew, Rachel and Elliot Waba, Tiffany Wagner, Rebecca Waba, and his dear friends, and the wonderful people who took care of him in the last years at Walnut Gardens in the San Fernando Valley. His memory is a blessing. Folks, that'll do it for this edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace.